Welcome to podcast number 129 of my favorite detective stories. Our guest today is Robert McCaw. Robert grew up in a military family traveling the world. After graduating from Georgetown University, he served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army before earning his J.D. degree from the University of Virginia School of Law. Upon graduation from law school, he spent a year as a judicial clerk for the Supreme Court Justice Hugo L. Black. He practiced law in Washington, D.C. and New York City, representing investment banks, lawyers, directors, and other clients in complex civil and criminal cases, including many that generated significant press coverage. He writes in the Koa Kane series, where the islands of Hawaii are central to the themes and concepts he has developed. His debut novel is Death of a Messenger, and he followed up with Off the Grid and Fire and Vengeance, and his fourth to-be-named novel in the series will arrive in January of 2022. This was an interesting conversation, and I really enjoyed speaking to him about his craft. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, series prequel novella, Liberty City Nights. Miami's most wanted drug dealer is on the run, always one step ahead of the cops. Young, newly married FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, working with the Fugitive Task Force, figured out how to draw him out of hiding. We should get killed in the final showdown. For my listeners, this is free. Go to my website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com and click on the link. It will be delivered to your inbox immediately. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Nice to uh, have an opportunity to chat with you and your listeners. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And where am I contacting you today, sir? Well, today I'm in La Jolla, California, which is a beautiful sunny day with the ocean out in front of me and temperature is in the high 50s. <laughs> oh, man, sweater weather, you know. But here in uh, southwestern Connecticut, as we record today, February the 12th, 2021, for the last two days, I've been on my driveway shoveling snow about four times so and ice. So it's been uh, a lot of fun, but at least it's not as bad as what's happened in place between the East Coast and the West Coast. That's been brutal for a lot of people and unexpected as well. So I'm happy, I guess, to be in a place where I can shovel snow for a couple of days. 
anyway. Well, your your reference to shoveling snow reminds me of my favorite story about the complaint to the weatherman. There's this guy who called up and he's really angry at the weatherman and he says, I just spent two hours shoveling partly cloudy off my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you so much for that, Robert. So you've got a very interesting career. And then somewhere along the line, you got the writing bug. And then you transitioned from that to that, you know, from your career to your writing career. So just take me back to the early days and just kind of walk me through and, and just tell me about how you got to be where you are now. Well, I uh, grew up in a military family, a traveling world, so I saw a lot of the world. My father was, a, was an army officer, and I ultimately went to law school, and after law school, spent a year clerking for uh, a justice on the United States Supreme Court, which gave me a wonderful opportunity to kind of sit at the feet of one of the three branches of government and learn a lot, uh, both about the personalities and about the way our uh, constitutional system works. I then practiced law in Washington and New York City for a long time, representing a variety of clients in criminal and civil matters. I met a lot of very interesting characters, some of whom uh, appear at least a piecemeal in books. And while I was practicing, I went to Hawaii to a, an ABA, American Bar Association, conference out there. And afterward, spent some time, vacation time, on the big island of Hawaii, which is the largest of the Hawaiian chain. And I fell in love with the place. And I began to do a lot of research. I went to the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. I went to the University of Hawaii. I really got into the very unique history of the Hawaiian Islands, into the archaeology and some of the rest of it. And I thought to myself, this is really fascinating, and I want to, I want to share this. I want to share this excitement that I have over the island with readers. My history of working in uh, legal cases involved a lot of litigation, a lot of places where I was actually trying to be a detective and figure out what happened and how to present the story. I was frequently involved in criminal cases, and so I was dealing with prosecutors, and FBI agents, and postal inspectors, and uh, a whole range of other federal officials. And so I decided that I would encapsulate my enthusiasm for Hawaii in mystery stories. And I made an early decision in this respect for which a lot of pain came along with it, pain in the form of work. I decided that my protagonist would be Hawaiian. And of course, I'm not Hawaiian. And so it required a lot of research. But I thought it was important to kind of present Hawaii through the language, through the culture, through the history, and that a Hawaiian voice was the right one for that. And so I chose to make my character... Uh, the chief detective of the Hilo Hawaii police. And that's really where that got started. And I started it long, long before I retired from the practice of law. Death of a Messenger is really the first book that I published. And I really spent 20 years writing that before I finally finished it and got it published. So that's a brief history. Okay. So was there any time during high school or college that you took writing courses or were you drawn to any particular writers or anything that gave you an idea that someday you might be a writer? 
Well, um, actually, probably the the time in which I really developed the desire to write was while I was practicing, because I found it fascinating to take a set of facts on the one side. And if you're going to be credible as a lawyer, credible and even in conversation with other people, you have to stay reasonably within the true facts. I'm not one for sort of alternate realities. Paranormal vampire. Yeah. And you take that and then you have to figure out what legal box it goes in. Is this a contract case? Is it an antitrust case? Is it a securities case? And what's the best box for your client to put these set of facts in? How do you argue it? And that writing those briefs preparing those papers, doing those investigations and writing up the interviews and the reports. That's where I really found the joy in writing. And that carried over to my fictional writing. Because some people look at having to do a brief or having to do a motion as being, they would their hand into a blender. And I can see that if you take the attitude that this is something where you can express your understanding of the facts and the law, and I bet you some of that came about from seeing how well the things, what are they called? Supreme Court justices, rulings and uh, rulings, and dissent, decisions. opinions and dissent opinions. Right. Yes. Seeing that go on, you could probably see a real flair for not only taking a sometimes dry subject, but actually being a very enlightening with good prose, if I could say. If well, I could be- there's also a level of fun that comes from figuring out how to do it. It's like a complicated puzzle. And so you can take a fact, and if you put the fact over here, it, it kind of suggests one thing. And if you put it over there and mix it with some other facts, it suggests something else. And figuring out the best way to present the case. I mean, it's the art of persuasion is really what we were doing, is figuring out how to take an audience. It's, it's a judge or it may be a prosecutor. It could be your adversary if you're in negotiations. And you figure out what is the best way to present your case so that you can persuade that person to do either what you want or at least to come halfway toward what you want. And I found that very challenging and fun. Mm. Now, in my years as an investigator, an insurance fraud investigator, and then later as a private investigator, I did quite a bit of reports and saying the exact same thing you're saying what my investigations were and how they impacted on the client's theory of liability, whether there was fraud, you know, whatever the issue was. And I felt that um, the better the report that exemplified the information that I gathered, the more the client would appreciate how well it was written and how well the facts were displayed. And I tend to agree with you on that. Am I saying the same thing, Robert, or is it a little bit more nuanced than what I'm saying? No, no, I think you're you're very close to the same thing that I'm saying. It's I guess there's a kind of game theory aspect to it that makes it fun. And you add to that interesting and challenging colleagues, you know, and no one ever gave me a brief to read that they had prepared where they didn't expect me to try to make it better. And when I would give a brief to somebody else to read for me, I would expect them to make it better. And that's also something that's really, really important to me as a writer, because there are some writers who don't like to be edited, who kind of have a pride of authorship or a kind of investment in their words that they don't like. 
I'm exactly the opposite. I love to be edited, especially by a good editor who can really make suggestions and see things from a different perspective and say, you know, is this really what you mean to say? Or could you say it better this way? I find that process just very, very enlivening. So I had the opportunity for many, many years before I wrote my first piece of fiction, although maybe some of my clients thought some of my reports were fiction. But that being this you know, aside, I wrote... Well, I had th- I had that same experience with some <laughs> judges who thought... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'd say, yeah, that was a good one, Bob. Uh, I know it's Robert, but I'm only kidding. And so, but when I wrote for trade magazines or industry rags, and I'd write on technical issues or things related to my craft, I always was fortunate to have a strong editor. And there are a couple that came to mind, Jane Craycraft for me and a, a woman by the name of Robin Elton Castle, and very strong editors that pointed out to me in, in a nice way, why I buried the lead, or was I really talking about this when the topic was that, or where could I find information that was, or how could I portray that information better? And they would take a couple of my clunky paragraphs and streamline them, and I would say, holy moly, look at that. And I realized right then and there that editors were my friends, and they were taking my raw lumps of coal and polishing them or allowing me to polish them into shiny diamonds, at least I thought. So, yeah. Well, you're lucky if you went from coal to diamond. Sometimes it's just nice to go from coal to plastic. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. No, I just felt that anytime they worked with me, I was grateful. That's the word I want to use. I was grateful for their editorial comments. And today, as a fiction writer, I get a nine or 10 page report. They're doing their job and they're doing it the best way they can. And shame on me if I don't pay attention to it. So. Anyhow, but we digress. So, you know, it's interesting. I have often thought that one of the greatest gifts that one person can give another is a different perspective. It's one of the things that makes me so sad about our very politicized environment, because we should be listening to each other, because if you can get somebody to give you a different perspective, they're giving you a gift which you should honor instead of throwing it back in their face. Well, we could, so we could that's uh, the way I feel about editors. Yeah, good. I feel the same way. So I know that, and then there's the opportunity to have a copy editor also take some of the clunky stuff and streamline it for you. And then, of course, a proofreader to save your butt so that you don't have readers picking out things that went wrong during the novel. And boy, that's a real skill too, proofreading. I don't have it. Honestly, I can't see the forest from the trees after the fifth draft. Can't concentrate that well, even though I wrote the darn thing. I can't. I just can't. I need those extra set of eyes that can read a sentence, whether it's a medical journal, a crime thriller, or a a steamy romance. You know, I need that proofreader to be able to just stick with the sentence and how it fits in the paragraph and what it does propel go forward in the story. But anyway, I digress. 20 years in the making of The Death of a Messenger. It reminds me of a a wine commercial, No Wine Before It's Time. Yes. So tell me about the twists and travails of Death of a Messenger and how it finally came to be what it is today. One of the places where Death of a Messenger started was at the summit of Mauna Kea, which is a 14,000-foot volcano on the big island of Hawaii. 14,000 foot? 
Yes. Wow. There are about a dozen telescopes up there. It's one of the premier telescopic sites in the Northern Hemisphere. But that place was glaciated during the Ice Age. It's one of the few places in the Polynesian area that was ever glaciated. And the glaciers came down to about 9,000 feet. And I mention that because underneath that glacier, there was an eruption. And the lava that came up, because it came up under the ice, cooled instantly, which caused it to form a very hard form of lava. It's called Hawaiian Hawkeye. And the ancient Hawaiians discovered this, literally this vein of very hard lava. And they climbed this mountain and they worked up there at about 11,000 feet, mining this hard rock for tools, for stone tools. It was a large industrial site in 1400s and 1500s. And then the miners, for some reason that we never figured out, they just disappeared. And so I'm standing up there on the mountain. I'm looking at this Ice Age quarry, which is extensive. It covers seven miles, seven square miles. And then you look up to the top and there are these modern telescopes. The most, some of them, including the Keck telescope, which is one of the most phenomenal instruments that man has ever created. It's a segmented mirror telescope, and it's made many, many, many important cosmological discoveries. And I thought to myself, look at this. We have the ancients here and the most modern here, and that is a critical part of the forming of the story of uh, Death of a Messenger which contrasts these two very, very different, but co-located in this very strange place to make the story. So setting is such a character. That's what I noticed when I read Death of a Messenger, that the setting was almost a character. Themselves. I think of it as a character in a several different ways. I think of the geology of it as a character. I think of the history of it as a character. And I think of the legend and myth that goes with it as a character. So, for example, when you talk about the volcanoes in Hawaii, you can't get four sentences into the discussion without hearing about Pele. Pele is the goddess of volcanic fury, frequently pictured as a wizened white woman with stringy hair. And indeed, one of the volcanic products that you get is known as Paley's hair because it is these fine strands of essentially a kind of glass that is blasted out of the volcanoes. And so all of this comes together. And I think of the island itself as a character that interacts with my human characters. It shapes them. It challenges them. It creates problems for them. It solves problems for them. And to me, that's a very important part of all of the three books that have been published and the fourth one that is coming next year. Okay. So walk me through. Well, first, you wrote Death of a Messenger. And as you mentioned to me before we got on the air, you self-published this and it got such attention that it got the eyes of an agent, I believe, and then the agent was able to get you to a publisher. Yes, absolutely wonderful agent who read Death of a Messenger and then became the agent for the second book, which is called uh, Off the Grid, which is published by Ocean View Publishing. And then we did Fire and Vengeance, which is the third one in the series, also published by Ocean View. And then Ocean View decided to come back and pick up Death of a Messenger and republish it with some changes to the uh, principal character and some other changes. 
And so that just came out in this past January. Okay. But originally it was copyrighted back in 2015. So you've done some writing, right? Yeah, yes. Definitely. You got moving. Once you get into it, it's a lot of fun. I work on it almost every day, one way or another. So do you want to give a shout out to your agent? Mel Parker. He's just absolutely fabulous. It's Mel Parker Books, LLC. I think it's melparker.com. He's a wonderful, thoughtful agent, a lot of experience in the business, and also happens to be quite a phenomenal editor. He has lots of good suggestions for me. So, uh, Oh, almost like a super beta reader then. He's really been enormously supportive, as has my publisher. Ocean View has really done a terrific job. They produce a really polished copy. They distribute it well, and they help sell it. Although, as you know, authors today are still asked by the publishers, even the biggest publishers, to do a lot of the selling themselves. Mm -hmm. No, I understand that. There's quite a bit of work involved besides not splitting infinitives or dangling participles. There's a lot of other things that have to go into the publishing and marketing process, and I'm aware of that. Now, so let's just talk about your main character, because you said there was a little bit of a rewrite there. And I've not heard the name said out loud, so I'm going to ask you to pronounce it for me. I mean, It's I... Koa Kane. Kane, okay. And Koa is a very interesting policeman, because as a teenager, his father died in a horrible sugar mill accident where his father was a worker. And Koa came to learn through talking to his father's friends and colleagues that what was presented as an accident may not have been an accident, that uh, his, his father had had a very bitter labor dispute with the mill manager. And Koa came to believe that the mill manager was responsible for his father's death. As a kind of reckless teenager, he followed the man into the mountains, the Hawaiian mountains, where the manager had a cabin. They got into a fight, and Koa, as a teenager, killed the mill manager. And he knew at that point that if he were caught or turned himself in, that the sugar industry would make sure that he was severely punished. And so after thinking about it for uh, quite a period of time, he camouflaged the death as a hanging suicide and escaped punishment. There's then a story about how he comes ultimately to become a policeman. But his experience as a criminal plays into his work as a cop in two very distinctive ways. One, his guilt and need for making up for his crime makes him extraordinarily empathetic to the victims of crimes, particularly murders. And then second, because he was successful in fooling the policeman that investigated the mill manager's death, he is inordinately suspicious to the point of being almost paranoid about being fooled himself when he does investigations. And so he approaches them with a kind of meticulous thoroughness and an instinct that makes him an extremely effective investigator. That's sweet. I really appreciate that. My listeners know from my other podcasts that I always ask my guests about what makes their protagonist tick and what their backstory is that might exhibit their flaws and then how those flaws are helpful in many cases in figuring out the whodunits that they're a part of or overcoming the obstacles 
that are placed in front of them. And you've just done a wonderful job of explaining that for me without me having to do uh, <laughs> an extraction. So that was nice. I really appreciate that. And really says it well, too, you did, because how much and such an important thing that happened in that young man's life, the death of his father, and then his avenging his father's death in a way. I'm not sure. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. He did. Then to be able to have the wherewithal to cover it up and get away with it. What a imprint on that teenager's psyche, how that causes him to be, that's part of his bedrock belief system and principles and guides him forward from that point. So that's excellent. Thank you so much for explaining that. Well, there's another aspect to that that runs through many other characters in the books and is a central theme in Fire and Vengeance. And that is the notion that none of us can completely escape our past misdeeds. Now, obviously, those misdeeds can be serious, as in Koa's case, or they can be less serious, but they affect us and they affect each person in a different way. And so one of the themes that I like to play with is what is it about somebody's past that has made them do what they have done? What is their excuse sometimes for what they have done based on their past? It's a fun theme to play with. Yeah. And an adroit writer doesn't beat the reader over the head with theme or concept, high concept, but they just so interweave it with the character or with the plot that it is, it makes it more interesting and doesn't take away from the story. And it sounds like uh, you were cautious and careful, but you still wanted to drive the story forward with this. And when it's done nicely, it's like it gives the story more depth without causing the writer to drown in the author's preaching from the soapbox. Is that a fair way of saying it? Absolutely. Or put another way that another author suggested to me. He said, you know, you need volumes and volumes and volumes of backstory, but you don't want to write it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, your characters have to have real, real depth. You have to think about them as real people. And, you know, if you look at any one of our lives, you could take an hour out of your life or an hour out of my life, and we could spend a day talking about what happened during that hour. Just that one hour, you, right. Yeah. And when you take a year... Or you take uh, 30 years, the amount of experience that's boiled into people that becomes part of them, that becomes part of the way they talk, the way they gesture, sometimes the way they move, how they interact with people. If you don't have a feel for that kind of depth in your character, then it's very hard to present that character as really real and to make people really get into that character, whether they hate the character or they love the character. So I want to ask you at this point, because you sound really on top of your game, how did you learn the craft of fiction writing? I learned a lot of, actually a lot of it practicing law and watching people. I used to tell colleagues in my office, uh, particularly younger lawyers, I said, you know, you go through and you watch what people do. And you watch the techniques that they use, watch the way they try to manipulate a situation or to persuade somebody and think of the, what they do as a set of tools. And you should be collecting those tools. You should be putting those tools in your toolbox 
Now, there may be some of those tools that you will never use. I mean, I've seen people get up in a negotiation and start screaming at the top of their lungs and walking out the door and, you know, being uh, bigger than life in ways that aren't particularly attractive. It's a tool. It's a technique. It's just not one I could ever, it's not one that consistent with my personality. I could never really pull it off. I'd start laughing before I got to the door. But there are, by studying those tools and watching how people interact, you get a real sense. And I dealt with some real characters, believe me, when I was practicing law. Part of the fun of practicing law was the characters that you met. In doing a lot of securities and enforcement litigation, you were typically dealing with people who were under stress because they are being challenged. And when people are under stress, you see aspects of their personality that you might not see otherwise. It's a cauldron for learning. And that's a great answer. I mean, it really is because what I like to say about my own career is that from the day I came home from my first shift as a cop until yesterday, I learned from the people that I talked to on my investigations or in court, and I'd come home and I'd tell stories. Now, was I a natural storyteller? No, I just was curious about what happened. I thought that was interesting. I'd come home and I'd tell my family. I'd tell friends at parties. I would probably capture a lot of people story after story after story with what I had going on. And I realized that I was creating not just a recitation of facts, but also trying to build suspense. And I didn't realize it, but I was in uh, Robert Campbell's, you know, The Hero's Journey. I was doing the three-act structure. I was doing inciting incidents. I was creating a hook. And I didn't know these things for all those years, but it just came. I don't want to use the word naturally because I was like you. We both had a, a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And that is litigation or what goes on to cause the litigation, whether it be criminal or civil. And I just always felt that, so when I came to my writing, yeah, I had to do some things. I had to learn some craft things myself, obviously. But like you said, the basics were there because they were fire tested through your career. Is that a fair way of saying it, sir? I think that's fair. I get asked all the time about what I do for research. And I'm very fond of starting that whole discussion by saying life is research. That's the way I look at it. You can sit in a restaurant and you can watch the couple across the room from you and you can think about them as uh, possible characters in the next book. Uh, oh, they got uh, short story written all over them. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I've seen a couple sit at a table and they're both on cell phones and they might as well be in different rooms. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, just yeah. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff that you see. If you're really if your eyes are open and you're thinking about it and you're thinking about whatever novel or fiction you're working on, the characters just, they, they jump over the transom at you sometimes. So without giving away the goods, can you just kind of give me a synopsis of Death of a Messenger and then walk me into how the character grows and changes into Off the Grid and then into Fire and Vengeance? Well, the beginnings of Death of a Messenger, they start at a place called Pohakaloa, which is the largest military installation in the Pacific, U.S. military installation in the Pacific, which is located in the saddle between the two high volcanoes on the Big Island, and in a lava cave, which is an area that lava once flowed through but then flowed out of like water, leaving a tunnel. 
and they're all over the Big Island. Koa finds a corpse that has been mutilated in a traditional Hawaiian ritual, and that begins the story. He then discovers that that cave is connected to a cave that the adzmakers, the, the workers that I told you about earlier who worked on the top of the mountain, worked in during the winter. And that cave is connected by a long tunnel to uh, the slopes of Mauna Kea. And that sort of begins the story. And then the question is, who is this deceased? Why was he killed? What are his ultimate connections? And I don't want to give away the whole story, but... And who killed him? (laughs) And who killed him? It ultimately leads to those observatories that I mentioned earlier. Oh, the old and the new. And the old and the new come together. And that's Koa's kind of first adventure. In We do something entirely different in Off the Grid, where in the course of a day, there are two murders, one of which is of a man who is found lying half in and half out of a lava flow. Good way to dispose of a body if you want. Oh, yeah. And they turn out to be loners living off the grid, and they have a quite incredible backstory which ultimately winds up explaining why they were killed and leads to uh, far-reaching consequences that are far distant from the Big Island. You use the word loners? Yeah, loners, people who live by themselves, off the grid. Oh, okay, loners, L-O-N-E-R-S, okay. Yes. Yeah, it made perfectly good sense, but so much Hawaiian in your books, I thought it was a Hawaiian term. I apologize, it was an American a, term. I'm American sorry. Term. All right, yeah. But the Hawaiian in the book is always translated for people, so you don't have to read Hawaiian. Okay, thank you. So I understand what a loner is. <laughs> it's a car that they give you at the shop. I know, I'm only kidding. Uh, well, that's a different definition. I know, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding, Robert. And then if you jump to Fire and Vengeance, you wind up, the, all starts off with a volcanic event erupting under an elementary school. And Koa learns that the people who built it knew about the volcanic vent, and you have this wonderful question about why a whole bunch of very wealthy and sophisticated people would put children at risk by building a school over top of a known hazard. And it makes for an interesting historical perspective in terms of why these people did what they did. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. It's easy to paint them with an ugly brush and just villainize them without any depth or any reasoning. And you take the time to do that. That's good. I think of, oh, I forget the name of the writer that wrote it, A Civil Action, but it uh, was starred John Travolta as an attorney where a pharmaceuticals plant or a chemical plant basically was poisoning a town. But we really don't get into other than the profit motive of why they did it or how they thought they could get away with it. So this is nice that you're giving us a little bit of a education as to motives and what drove the people to put these kids at risk. So the fourth book, what's it looking like right now? Well, the fourth, I'm actually reading Final Galleries right now. The cover's been done. It's advanced readers' copies come out in September. So it is a very deep dive into Koa's personality and his background. And it all comes together around the fact that The man, the mill manager that he killed, 
his grandson comes to the island to find out what happened to his grandfather and raises the possibility that maybe this 30-year-old crime Koa has hidden all these years, maybe it will no longer remain hidden. And that's one of the two tales that are wound up in the book. The other one is a, an espionage story involving, again, the uh, military base that's in the saddle between the two volcanoes. Okay, cool. And you have a military background. And so, yeah. And now are you, what branch of the service were you in, sir? I apologize. I was a young artillery officer. After I graduated from Georgetown, I went into the military. I spent two years. I spent 13 months and two days in Korea. That's after the war. Oh, after the war. Okay. And then spent the rest of the time either training in the States or assigned duty in the States. But it was... Uh, Koa has a little bit of military experience, and as I've told people from time to time, if you dig far enough into his history, you see a little bit of me, although I never killed anybody. Okay. So <laughs> that's and because the statute of limitations doesn't run on that, and you're not going to admit that on my podcast. So. But anyway, it's been wonderful, Robert, having you on today. I really appreciate it. How can people find you and your books? Well, the best place is my website, www.robertb, as in brother, macaw, M-C-C-A-W, dot com. Okay. And there's uh, lots of information about the books, reviews, some blogs I've written, and it's worth going. It's also got uh, tabs for you to buy the books if you want. That's fantastic. I hope my listeners will. This is very interesting. If you want to take a deep dive into Hawaii and a very... Well thought out protagonist detective. I think this is the books for you. So I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come on my show today. I look forward to seeing the next one when it comes out. And I thank you again, sir. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a real pleasure to chat with you, and I hope your listeners enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. We hope we've earned your interest in your time. Please visit our website for show notes and to leave a comment or question at johnhoda.com. This week, we have a special crossover release. Head over to How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business for a delightful chat with Kelly Paxton. Kelly is known mostly as the pink collar crime lady. After a variety of roles in her career spanning from financial services special agent and fraud examiner, she has earned a unique perspective and expertise specifically in the realm of embezzlement. John and Kelly discuss her career path, experience, and what exactly pink collar crime is and how it affects you. Use the direct link in the show notes to head over to How to Rocket Your PI Business Podcast today. Our guest next week on My Favorite Detective Stories is Tammy Giuliano, M.D. She's a practicing anesthesiologist and tenured professor at the University of Florida. In addition to a prolific list of academic publications, YouTube teaching videos, and numerous teaching awards, she has also written award-winning short fiction. She's joining us on the show next week to debut her new novel, Fatal Intent. You will not want to miss it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation and would like to hear about other great detective writers and their books, please go to our website, johnhoda.com, and click on our podcast page. 
While you're there, make sure to sign up for the email list to get John's new novella, Liberty City Nights, for free. Check out the show notes for links to all of John's publications, ways to connect with today's guest, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends or leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.